This is episode number 185, Be More Productive with Jeff Sanders. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. Nonsense is anything that you're doing that technically never has to get done at all. The more time you spend on nonsense, the less time you have available to do the things that actually matter to you in your life. When I look at someone's life that's probably overwhelmed, probably has too much going on, the very first question is, what can we cut? That's what then leads to true productivity as you spending more of your time on things that really do matter and things that really move the needle. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast, and I'm stoked that you guys are here and part of my community. Thanks so much to those of you who have been leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts, to those who have supported my work financially on Patreon and PayPal. And if you want to do that, there's a link in the show notes. And also just to those of you who are sharing screenshots and just telling your friends about the show. It's pretty awesome to be able to share the stories and skills and expertise of these guests with everybody and to help you be better. And it's definitely making me better every day as well. I'm recording this intro in advance, and this is two days before my scheduled due date for my baby. So have I had my baby yet by now? I don't know. You'll have to check online and see. This podcast will still continue to come out every Thursday, and I worked super hard to pre-record several months of episodes to give myself a little bit of a maternity leave from the podcast. The one thing that I am changing is that I won't be doing a weekly Crush It Mondays for the next couple of months. It's just a little bit too much to have that second episode, but as time allows, I will be putting them out there if it works out. (laughs) So let's get into today's guest, Jeff Sanders. Being productive, getting up early to get stuff done, being organized, these are all traits I admire and aspire to do more of, especially the getting up early part. I'm not a morning person, although I'm going to have to become one, I guess. What about boundary setting or better focus and accountability? Yes, if these topics are ringing a bell for you, and I'm sure they are, then you'll enjoy today's podcast guest, Jeff Sanders. He's a keynote speaker, a productivity coach, podcast host of The 5 a.m. Miracle, author of several books, and founder of the Rockin' Productivity Academy. He's both productive and busy, and in his spare time, he is also a plant-based marathon runner and personal development junkie. His background is also not what you would expect. It was actually in theater, and you can tell with his melodic voice. In today's episode, we talked about how Jeff's background in theater helps him in his career and personal development, why he is interested in productivity, habits, and routines, and some of his favorite books that are linked in the show notes for you to go read, tracking and getting out of reactive mode, how to eliminate distractions, how to set goals without burning out, some of his favorite apps and tools, and how eating plant-based makes him more productive. This was a super fun episode to record, and I think you guys are going to get a lot out of it. And last, if you haven't subscribed to my free weekly newsletter, it comes out every Friday, you can do so at sonyalooney.com slash newsletter, and you'll get notifications of podcast episodes that came out during the week and any articles that I've either written or come across and even some giveaways or coupons that are coming from my sponsors. So that's sonyalooney.com slash newsletter. No spam, all fun, and we'll see you guys on there. So let's get into it with Jeff Sanders.
Jeff Sanders, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. I'm excited to be here today. It was fun to chat with you before we turned the microphones on, just talking about our past and where we came from. And the first thing that I noticed when we started talking was how incredible your voice is. And you told me that <laughs> your background is actually in theater. Yes, that's correct. I grew up doing a lot of high school theater. All my friends were just doing theater. And so I kind of joined them just for fun because my, my friends were doing what I wanted to do too. And then I went, went to college. I decided to major in theater because I had no other plans. And so I, th I thought it'd be fun to do that. Um, which led me to then wanting to use those skills as a career, which is why I have a podcast now and, and a public speaker, because I think using my voice leverages one of my natural, I don't know, skills, if you want to call it that, or natural abilities. And so it's just become kind of part of who I am. What advice do you have for people who might have stage fright? I have stage fright. So I think it's one of those, I think it's like anything else. If you directly address something and you do it frequently enough, the fear either goes away completely or becomes so manageable it's not really a thing to think about. One thing I've noticed over the years is that the more often that I am active in doing things that I am afraid of, that I get this little tangible sense of like I'm making a little bit of progress here. I like making progress. One of the things I love about personal growth and love about being productive is that I like to feel that sense of like I'm going somewhere. And so for me, like stage fright or fear of any kind, it, it's all kind of tackled piece by piece. And so I can find like little tricks or little ways to overcome it or find ways of just to feel comfortable and to smile and laugh more. It just eases tension and makes things so much easier to get through. So that's really kind of my perspective. I can walk into an environment smiling, laughing, having fun, wanting to help other people and not thinking about myself as much. That just lends to more of a conversation and more of an interesting dynamic. So it doesn't have to just be like, you know, you in the spotlight by yourself on stage talking. It can be just more of a discussion and a dialogue, which I think helps to make you know, that fear a lot less tangible. And what is a day in the life like of somebody who is pursuing a career or a degree in theater? Because most people listening to the show have never had that experience before. And I think there's a lot of nuances that happen behind the scenes. Well, I mean, when I was in college, theater was my priority. So I had actually two majors, theater and psychology. And I tacked on a psychology degree just for fun. But I really, my primary focus was theater. And so what that actually like results in is a lot of time in the theater, a lot of time on stage, a lot of time you know, just in the environment of being around other actors and costume designers and set designers. And you're kind of just in the mix because my actual degree was a, a liberal arts degree in theater, which really just means it's like a well-rounded degree, which is I did all the different aspects of theater. Uh, so I was directing, I was designing stages, designing costumes. I learned to sew, which is a lot of fun. I have that skill set today because of that. And all of that experience to be fully immersed into theater means that if you're committed to it and you really care about it, it is your whole life. Like I definitely have a lot of friends who took it so seriously that they went on and did Broadway shows. And I still have friends today on Broadway because they, number one, are that talented, but number two, were that disciplined to want to pursue it as their life and as their livelihood. I didn't actually make the leap to say that I wanted to be an actor full time as my career, but I wanted to use those skills in another way, which is later on what led to the you know, public speaking and the podcast. But I think that the initial kind of you know, desire to want to be an actor or want to be involved in theater is really to say, like, I just love these people so much, this experience so much, I can't imagine doing anything else. I think that if you have that love for something, anything, regardless of what it is, it's impossible to turn it down. You just want to do it more, which I think leads to so much growth and then the knowledge that comes with that and the, and the confidence that comes with that. 
So for me, it's just, it was who I was for many years. I'm less of that person today, but I still carry with me a lot of those lessons that I learned back then. And kind of rounding out, just talking about this realm, what percentage or, or just how much do you think talent versus effort play a role in acting? Because in sports, we've thought about this a lot, but what about with like singing and acting? It is almost 100% your ability to work your butt off. Like that is basically it. Um, there are some exceptions. Like if your actual like singing voice, for example, isn't very good, like mine's not fantastic, which means I might, you know, potential with singing as a career is almost negated by the fact that there's no actual skill set there versus acting, directing, set design, costuming, like you name it. There's lots of areas of theater that I would just put into the ballpark of just a skill that you can learn. And anything that you can practice deliberately for a long time period, you can get really good at and you can make it your thing. And for the vast majority of people who kind of make it in that sense or are successful are just the ones who never gave up. Like they're the ones who just kept pushing and learning and asking questions and trying new things. And they just never stopped trying. And I think that, that is the thing that creates you know, success in someone's career or in someone's life is that you just it's such a part of you that you're not going to quit. And I feel like that's the difference maker, not to mention the fact that this is very true in the, in the world of theater and acting is that people who have kind of the, you know, the diva mindset, like they're really talented because of that. They have like arrogance that comes with that. People don't want to work with them. They don't want to hire them. So having just like raw talent by itself uh, doesn't get you very far. You have to also work with people. You have to like other people. You have to be very you know willing to be generous of your time and your energy and your gifts. And if you have all of that going for you as well, you kind of decide that you're going to be that person, things just fall into place for you. You'll have more opportunities. You'll meet more people. You'll have chances to, you know, hire and get an agent or go to auditions or whatever. So there's a whole world that opens up to you if you're willing to work really hard and never quit and just be a decent human being. So it sounds like you learned tenacity and the value of hard work through coming up through theater. Now, how did your career pivot once you finished school? Because you said that now you're really focused on your podcast and I'm talking about productivity and personal development. How did it shift into that? So when I left college, uh, my girlfriend at the time, who then became my fiance very quickly, and then my wife, she was going to uh, grad school in Boston. And so both of us grew up in Missouri and went to school in Missouri and she got into grad school. So we moved to Boston. And at that point, I had to make the decision, like, what kind of a job does someone get with a degree in theater if I don't want to pursue acting or theater as a career, which I didn't at that point. And so I just took odd jobs, which I hated doing, but I wanted to take some time just to figure out, like, how does, what does it mean to be an employee? What does it mean to live on your own in a big city? What does it mean to kind of be an adult? And so I was asking a lot of these questions of myself. And that led to me getting a job as a door-to-door salesman, which was horrendous. It was the worst (laughs) job in the world. Like I hated every minute of it, except for one small piece, which was that my boss was uh, obsessed with a guy named John Maxwell, who has written probably 50 or 60 books at this point. He's a legendary public speaker and he was a pastor for a long time and then became this prolific author and speaker. And so my boss was in love with this guy and made me read a bunch of his books. And once I discovered, like, wait a minute, there's a whole world of people out there who write books and give speeches for a living. And that's their whole career. Like up to this point, I had no idea that was even a thing. And so once I knew that personal growth was a thing and that you could do that for a living, 
it was just like, well, duh, that's what I want to do. Like I was just became obsessed with that. So I began to read a lot more books. I watched documentaries like crazy. I just immersed myself into personal growth and discovered at that point, well, the people that are doing this really well at a high level, you know, they're entrepreneurs, they've got websites and blogs, and later on they've got podcasts and they are, you know, hustling to get all kinds of, of coaching clients. And they're just, they're in this world full time. And so I knew at that point at age like 23, at some point, this needs to be my life, but I had no idea how that was ever going to come about. And so for me, it was just like, I worked odd jobs to pay the bills. So I was, I was a banker for a while. I worked at the Apple store for a while just to kind of make ends meet. But in the background and, you know, nights and weekends, all I was doing was reading, blogging, you know, looking at websites, figuring out how to create a career. And so then later on, about five ish years later, I did manage to go full time, but it took, uh, it took a while to get there. And what were the steps that you took to get there? Because a lot of people say that they want to inspire people for a living and it's a really great thing to do, but it's actually a hard thing to make a living at. So you said you were reading books and you were blogging, but how did you end up monetizing those things and making money? Initially, what it came from was I had a small ebook that I wrote, which didn't make hardly any money, but I was really excited to sell anything at that first point. So I think I made probably $100 in a month. and I thought I was, I was rich because I was just really excited to make something. <laughs> which then kind of catapulted in me saying, well, if I could make money selling an ebook and I've got this blog that people are reading, let me venture into the world of podcasting. Because at that point, I knew I wanted to be a podcaster. I wanted to use my theater skills, but I didn't really know if that would ever result in money. But I knew that for me, podcasting would be a really good fit for who I was and what my skill set was. So I launched the show and immediately people began to email me and say, you know, do you do coaching? Well, at that point, I didn't, but I was like, sure, I do coaching. So I started getting coaching clients, and it was about a year later that the company I was working for at the time went bankrupt overnight, and I was laid off. And so then I said, well, I've got this kind of you know part-time coaching thing going. Let me ramp that up and make that kind of hopefully my full-time income until I can figure out other ways to make money. So that's how it initially started was that I had coaching income. I had some you know, small e-products, e-courses that I created. And then later on, began to sell podcast sponsorships. And so I've got lots of sponsors now that work with the show. I got a few book deals because of the podcast. And then speaking engagements came in later on. And so these things began to scale one by one. And one thing led to another. Uh, but it all really began with me just finding some people to help out as, you know, one-on-one -on -one coaching. And that was the initial start uh, Then led to other things. And how did you learn how to coach? Because it's one thing to read books or write articles, but the actual act of coaching somebody is really different. Technically, I never really learned how to do it, which is kind of funny to me because this is how I've approached most things, which is I just kind of jump in and I see if I'm any good at it or not or if I like doing it. And I'll just say straight up, generally speaking, I don't enjoy coaching like I enjoy other things, but I do enjoy having somebody else learn and grow from advice I can give them. And so to a certain degree, it's like I was just, I kind of opened the door to what does this person want from me? Like, how can I help them? What's the value that I can add to their life? And so I would just say, focus on that and really just ask them a lot of questions. You know, who are you? What do you do? What do you want? How can I be of service to you? And once we could nail down a few specific, you know, goals that they wanted to achieve, then it was just me kind of using my kind of skill set in the world of productivity and organization to say, well, let me just make a plan that you can follow and I will help you through that plan to achieve the goals that you want. And that simplicity was just, that was the only approach I took years ago. It's the same one I use today. And it's one that works well in terms of just getting to the core of the issue of 
how I can help somebody else. And if that's all that takes place, the, my coaching clients enjoy that process because they get what they wanted and I can be helpful for them. And so that to me is what it means to be a good coach at this point is just providing the value that they find valuable. And if that takes place, then we're good to go. Personal development's a really huge field. How did you decide that or what resonated about productivity and routines and things like that? Like, why did you choose to go that direction? That's a good question. It actually came from was my last day job, which I left five years ago, or actually was laid off from five years ago. Um, And what I was doing was working at a career college here in Nashville, where I live. I took that job also because they were hiring. I had no interest in working at a career college, but (laughs) I knew that I needed a job while I was trying to build my blog and podcast. And I was hired on initially to do career counseling, which was hysterical to me because I had no real (laughs) career to begin with. And yet I was giving career advice which was also kind of a funny part of my story is I feel like I'm asked to do things I don't feel prepared to do and I have to somehow figure it out. And it it does work, which I think is kind of an interesting journey in entrepreneurship by itself or in life is that you can step into things that are brand new to you and discover a lot of things about yourself in the process. But that's all our story. So I was a career counselor who then I got a promotion to be the school's registrar. And that is a fancy word for meaning I push around a lot of paper. I was the head person who was in charge of all of like the admissions paperwork and making sure that every student could graduate. And like the registrar for any institution, any university is a big title, but this was a small school, but I still was in charge of a lot of stuff. And so I had to figure out how do I organize this massive file system, all this paperwork, all these students, there was like probably 500 students in the school. You know, how do I make sure that all of this stuff stays organized? And it was a huge undertaking at that point. Being productive wasn't really a focus of mine, but it had to be in that job. And so I just jumped in, you know, feet first and and asked all kinds of questions like, how can I be more efficient? How can I get, you know, 50 hours of work done in only a 40 hour work week? How do I get more value out of my time? And I found that as I got better at that, I really became excited about just productivity in general. I really enjoyed checking boxes. I really enjoyed feeling like my day meant something because a lot of stuff got done. And so I took my lessons from that and kind of transferred that over into, well, then how can I help somebody else be productive? How can I help them have their time be more efficient? And that's what ultimately led to my blog and podcast and the topics I now discuss all really stem from this kind of me being thrown into a job I had no real knowledge of, but had to organize so much stuff that I just, I found a passion in that work. So let's get into talking about productivity. What are some steps or ways that people can be more productive in their daily lives? And what are the main issues that people have? The first thing I always recommend people do is cut as much as they can. I think that's one of the number one things that this, it stands out with everyone's life because we're all extremely busy, but we're busy for the most part because we're doing a lot of stuff that doesn't actually have to happen. In my last book that I published, The Free Time Formula, um, I have this long discussion about what I call nonsense. And nonsense is anything that you're doing that technically never has to get done at all. And the more time you spend on nonsense, the less time you have available to do the things that actually matter to you in your life. And so when I look at someone's life that's probably overwhelmed, probably has too much going on, you know, the very first question is, what can we cut? And as soon as that happens, I mean, this is for me as well. Like one of the best feelings that I get is I can look at my calendar and cancel a meeting or get rid of a project 
because it just frees up that time. And it's like a weight being left off my shoulders. Like I just feel lighter and happier because now I have an opportunity to fill that time with something I actually care about. And for me, that's what then leads to true productivity as you spending more of your time on things that really do matter and things that really move the needle. And so from that, the idea that we're all kind of overly busy and need to let go of stuff, the second biggest hurdle is just pure distraction whether it's the internet, TV, you know, coworkers, you know, just our own ideas, which is often the case for me, is that we find ourselves just being pulled in a thousand directions. And so the biggest challenge today is to focus and only do a few things. And that is such a difficult skill to master because you're always being challenged to not focus. And that's a constant issue. And so for me, I set up structures in my life to make sure that when I'm doing something, it's the only thing I'm doing. I mean, right now, like our conversation is my only focus. And so my dog is put away in another room. You know, my door to my office is locked. You know, I've got my phone turned off. Like I am in a complete like zone. And that's the way that I can get everything done that matters. And so that to me is, is how do you get somebody whose life is busy to be in a focused place where they can do their best work without distraction? And when that happens consistently, you get a lot done. What if somebody is looking at their all their things on their list and they say, well, I can't cut anything. I'm sure you've heard that. And a lot of us feel that way when that's actually not true. So how do you help people learn to figure out what they can cut out? Well, it really depends on what the goals you have are. So if you say to yourself, I can't cut anything, it's generally because you value a lot of things, which is wonderful, but there's probably only a few of those things you value that are bringing you the results you truly care about. And so that's kind of part of it. It's like, what am I getting from this activity? What am I getting? What kind of value do I receive from this time spent on whatever the thing is? And then you kind of pick and choose and say, well, if these three or four things are what really make the biggest difference in my life, then let's have an experiment, take a week and just let go of the other stuff. And not forever, just like temporarily let it go. And I find that when you do that, a simple example could be like canceling an online service that you really like or you know, not having Netflix for a month. Do something like that and just see like, did my life get a lot worse? Like, was I miserable because I didn't have that thing I thought was so important? And as often as the case, the answer is no. You were totally fine, if not better than you were before. And when that's the case, you can prove to yourself that you can live with less, you can do fewer things, your life does not have to be so complicated, but it just takes an initial willingness to acknowledge that, yes, some things can be cut because life really truly is only lived really well through a few things. And so it's just that self-awareness to know what it is you're going to cut initially and then to see how that plays out over time. Yeah, it seems like to have more clarity and simplicity in your life, you have to be able to track what you're doing on a daily basis. I guess the first step would be just track everything to see what it is that you're actually doing and what you're spending your time on. Is there any tips you have on how to track what you're doing or any types of like apps or or spreadsheets or anything that you have used? Well, I think for me, the best kind of strategy that I use for that is uh, the getting things done methodology with the weekly review. So famous author named David Allen wrote a book many years ago called Getting Things Done, and it has become like the the Bible of productivity in my world. So it's like the go to book where if I have a question about what to get done, I tend to lean on that. And the one strategy of the weekly review I have used for probably almost 10 years now, every single week without fail. And what I do in that process is I have it takes about an hour and a half, two hours at most. And on Sunday evenings, I do this process where I go through and examine my last week. How did it go? What was good? What was bad? What could I change for next week? 
How am I going to live better and more intelligently and to get more results of the things that I want? Uh, you know, I acknowledge where I messed up. I acknowledge failures I may have had, acknowledge losses I may have experienced. And then I try to answer that question of how do I just get more value out of my time in the week coming up? And I find that just proactive nature of just sitting down with your calendar, looking at your task list, whatever apps you use doesn't really matter. You just look at the tools you've committed to and ask, how do I get more value out of these tools and out of my time? so that I can get the results I want. And I find that most people don't take the time to ever review their calendar with that level of intention, let alone every week. And so if you do that for even just 30 minutes a week to look at your calendar with intention and map things out well, you can find so much opportunities to batch things together or cut things that don't matter or free up time for yourself. And when that happens, it's amazing how you're able to then really manage your time to track what you're doing because at least once a week, you're going to track what happened last week and what you can do going forward. Now, having said all of that, there are tons of apps and spreadsheets and plenty of opportunities to keep track of what you're doing. So it kind of just depends on what it is you're tracking. Like I have a really boring Excel spreadsheet I've used for probably eight to 10 years now for my daily fitness habits. And so I keep track of my workouts through there. Um, so it doesn't have to be fancy. It just has to be something you use and rely on. And if you have a tool that you've committed to, that's your go-to, uh, you can get a lot of value out of very simple tools if you use them well. And so that's my idea with technology is use the fewest amount of tools I can, but get the most value out of them. And when that happens, uh, it's amazing how much you can really organize your life, your business, your projects uh, with only a handful of tools. Yeah, I use a simple spreadsheet that I just made up as well. And I think that like having everything mapped out where you can read it at the end of the week, it really helps you have an idea of what you spent your time on what you did not prioritize that you either don't need to do anymore or that you actually need to prioritize. But going into that review, that progress report mode, that tracking mode, it takes time. And it also takes a step of getting out of reactive mode and getting into proactive mode. Because if you're just reacting to tasks that need to get done all day long or all week long, and then you just dive right into the next week without taking that control back, it's really hard to even stay organized or to even know what you did. That's a really good point. I mean, the idea of being in reactive mode is so easy because everything is coming at us all the time, whether it's, you know, emails that come in or text messages or requests of our time for meetings. Like, it's amazing just how easy it is to stop thinking critically in that sense and to just respond. Now, yes, probably half my job is just responding to things that happen. But if I want the results that I want from the projects I care about, like the only way that's going to happen is if I set aside time to proactively do those things. And then while I'm in, you know, call it a focus block of time, I'm not going to be available for reacting to new things that come in. And so then I have time set aside just to react, you know, time set aside just to take care of those things. That's still part of life, but that can't be your whole week. It can't be everything you do. And if it does, then you get more stressed out a lot faster and you definitely don't make the progress that you could. And so I find that proactivity, though it is initially more work, like you see the value in it so quickly, it's really hard to not do it then because you know you can get so much more out of your time. Yeah. And I think getting ourselves set up for that is important. Like, for example, we're recording this podcast. The only thing I have open on my computer is a Skype window and my notes with only the note open with the bullet points that I want to talk about. My phone is off. My email is closed. So I don't get distracted if I see like a new email, a new shiny thing. And <laughs> it's so easy to, to keep all these tabs open at all times. 
And we don't feel good whenever we're not staying productive or not staying concentrated. And like, in, I'm sure you've come across this in psychology and cognitive neuroscience. We feel the best whenever we have gone through a block of concentration where we're not being distracted or multitasking. Oh, it's so true. I just had one yesterday where I was working actually on, on podcasting stuff and I spent five solid hours just doing my podcast work for the week. And I was blown away at how good I felt just doing that. And this wasn't a surprise to me because I've used that same strategy to write both of my books in the past where I would go to a library and I'd hide from the world and just write for four or five hours in a row and leaving those writing blocks, like the sensation that I felt of just like joy and fulfillment and satisfaction, like you can't beat that. It's just the same as I feel after a really good workout. It's like you're doing a focused activity for a certain amount of time. Like that provides a lot of fulfillment. You definitely don't get if you're trying to do 18 things at once. And so I know that's true. And I, and my biggest challenge all the time is to get back to my next focus block because I know what it provides. What are some other tips you have for eliminating distractions? It depends on what distracts you. Like I know a lot of people, like I work from home, and so I'm, I'm by myself a lot. Although recently I added a co-working space so I can go downtown in Nashville and actually be around people more often, which is a whole other thing. But I think for a lot of people, their biggest distractions come from either coworkers or just their lack of a passion for their work. And I say that because a lot of people are working jobs they just flat out hate. And if that's the case, of course you're gonna be distracted because you don't wanna do your job. And if that's the case, then I feel like your only mission in life then is to change jobs immediately and find work that you love. Because when you do find work you love, it is a lot easier to be emotionally tied to it, which means you're much more willing to block anything that's not the thing you want to do, um, which may sound pretty obvious, but like that's not how people tend to live. And so if you can fill as much of your time every day with activities you really want to do, then blocking distractions is not really that difficult because you can just turn your phone off because you don't really care for the next hour because you're going to do a podcast or whatever it is you think you, is awesome. And so to me, like that's the, where it all starts is like, do you want to do the thing you're doing? And if you don't, change that. But if you do, then you can take practical steps to turn your phone off, to lock your door, uh, to hang a sign on your office door that says, leave me alone for an hour, which I've done many times. It really just comes down to analyzing what is pulling me away from my work? Like, why am I distracted? You know, do I look at Facebook all day? What, what am I doing with my time? And whatever those things are, directly address those things and find a strategy that will allow you to not have those distractions during the time that you're working. And that simple nature of being proactive has led me to getting a lot more work done uh, to the point where I actually created what I called an FBOT checklist or a focus block of time checklist. So I had 10 things on the list that said, when I begin this focus block, I'm going to intentionally do these things. It was everything from turn my phone off, lock my door, you know, make sure I had all my materials prepared, like all this full list of things to make sure that when the focus block began, I was fully into my work. And if that's the level of intentionality it takes, then do that because it works. And I find that, you know, that kind of level of simplicity is very powerful. There is an app or a website I was using for a little while on my browser called Rescue Time so I could see what I was spending my time on. And so if anybody's listening, like I thought that that was actually helpful because it actually maps out like where your time goes each day if you're not sure what's happening with your time. <laughs> yeah, that's a great one. I love it. So you mentioned that you are spending time in a co-working space. And back when I used to work as an engineer in an office, I was always incredibly frustrated because people would always just come by just to quote chat. And I just wanted to get my work done. But I also work from home now like you, and it also can be really lonely to not be around people and 
like you only see your spouse and that's it like for days. <laughs> so like, how did you make that decision and how has that affected your productivity? Well, I think that, you know, when I went to full time as an entrepreneur five years ago, the idea of working from home was fantastic. It was like all I ever wanted because I hated my job and I, I liked my coworkers, but I didn't love them necessarily. And so to me, it was just like I wanted to get out of a job that I was just exhausted by. and was I was glad the company went under, like, frankly. And so <laughs> when it did, it was just like, OK, now I get to work for myself. I get to do the thing I've been wanting to do for a long time. This is a good thing. And so I mean, for the first probably two or three years, working from home by myself was awesome. Every single day was just like a party. It was like I get to do my thing all the time. But over time, I just slowly crept in. They're like, wait a minute. Like, I feel this like nagging sense that something's not right. And it took me a long time to pinpoint that as just I was straight up lonely. And I'm not the kind of person that gets lonely. Like, I'm pretty extroverted. I've got a lot of friends. But I just found that so much of my time was spent. You're right. Just seeing my spouse and my dog. Which like my dog is great. I love him, but not 10 hours a day when I'm trying to work. Like I need something <laughs> else going on. And so for me, I joined a co-working space two years ago that lasted for a few months, but it wasn't a good for me because the commute was too weird and like, my schedule was kind of messy. So I brought it back. I'm in a new space now downtown in Nashville. I've been there for a, about a month. And what I've discovered recently is that now that I'm back in a space that's not my home, uh, number one, no one knows who I am at the co-working space. I'm a total stranger to everybody else. And no one really talks to me, but I'm just around people who are working. And I find that being in an environment where the only thing that's happening is work, I get a lot more done. I have fewer you know, distractions. I have fewer excuses to not do my work. I feel like if I'm around people that are doing you know, proactive things, then that's what I'm going to do too. And I find the same thing is true, like why I stopped working out in my garage with my weights and I joined a gym because when I go to the gym, I'm surrounded by really intense people who are really kicking butt and I want to be like them. And so if I can put myself in an environment where the thing I want to accomplish is being accomplished by other people, it just makes it so much easier for me to also do that same activity. And that's what I tend to look for if I can find you know, that environment that exists. I want to put myself in the middle of it and immerse myself in it because then I know I'm going to do that same activity and then get those results I want. That's a really good point. And with a baby coming, that's something I'm probably going to have to start enforcing because I don't see how even if there's childcare in my home while I'm home, it's going to be really hard to stay productive. If you hear like your baby crying and you're working in the other room and yes. just trusting that somebody else has got this and you have kids or you have what is yep. it? What one kid? I have one daughter. Yes. One daughter. Yeah. How did that change your systems around your business? It changed everything. <laughs> well, I can't say everything, but it did change a lot of stuff. And really, I think the biggest thing that changed initially was I had to reevaluate why I do what I do and when I'm going to do the things that I now kind of value as important. And so initially, my wife and I took about two and a half to three months off uh, to just do nothing but childcare and kind of new parenting stuff. And then we both went back to work. And when we did, it was a whole new ballgame of our daughters in daycare. And that's a different you know, financial obligation. It's also time commitment because now I have to pick her up from daycare, take her to daycare, uh, arrange all of that. So then my work day got immediately shorter. Because when you, it's just you, your spouse, your dog, you basically could work whenever you want, especially as, as an entrepreneur at home. I could work seven days a week if I wanted to at any time of day. There was really no restriction on my time for years. And so then all of a sudden I have to kind of live a, a nine to five life more so than I had for a long time, which at first I was not happy about. Like I didn't want the boundaries. I didn't want the restriction. 
But what I have found to be true, especially as someone teaches productivity, is that boundaries are amazing. They are incredibly effective. They help you stay focused. They say there's a deadline in place. You know, If you only have four hours to get something done, you're definitely going to finish it in four hours because if you don't, the time is up. And I feel like that sense of just knowing that my workday is only so long and then I have family time that's guaranteed and I have other activities that are all based around those blocks of time, it actually makes things easier to schedule because I know there are certain things that can't happen or certain things that can only happen in certain blocks, which forces me into action to do those things when the time shows up. And so having said that, like, yes, I have more restriction, but now I have more freedom of choice in terms of what things actually matter to me and how I can guarantee those things get done. And that's a, a massive game changer when it comes to just how you view your time and how you're going to choose the things that truly matter, as opposed to what I did before, which honestly was just I did everything because I had no reason not to, which is actually not very effective. It's not productive because then you spend a lot of time on things that's actually pretty useless. And as opposed to now, I really feel like I can filter and really only choose the things that bring about big results, which means I'm actually going to have bigger results down the road, which to me is, is pretty exciting. I remember when I had that first realization of, oh, like I can't work every single second of the day. And, and that, that happens when people come visit and they stay with you because I was so accustomed to working seven days a week because that's just what I did. And my husband, you know, he let me do it uh, or he didn't mind if I did it. But if people come to visit, you can't be working on the weekend whenever they're visiting you. So I initially was really frustrated when people were visiting because I couldn't get the work done that I wanted to get done. I wanted to spend Saturday or Sunday or both days working. And after that happened, I said to myself, okay, there's a problem here. I need to stop working all weekend. And so now I reserve a very small block of time on one day where I'm allowed to work and the rest of the time there's no work happening. And yeah, setting that boundary was really hard to do initially. And I didn't even realize the extent of which I was working on the weekend until someone came to stay with me and I couldn't actually work. That's a really good point. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, my daughter was born a year and a half ago. And since then, you know, the grandparents, you know, my parents, my wife's parents are constantly at our house, like all the time, <laughs> like stay with us because they, they all live in Missouri and we're in Tennessee. And so they have to commute in. And then when they commute in, they stay with us and they're on top of us for, you know, weeks at a time sometimes. Yeah. It's a really bizarre thing to really realize that your time is not your own anymore. And I feel like that was definitely a loss for me. Like I emotionally felt like I lost something. But, you know, as I've come to figure out like better ways to set boundaries for other people and for myself, like that just leads to me, you know, being more kind of resolute in what I'm going to do and when I'm going to do it. And I think that that has made me, you know, stronger, more confident, just more able to say, like, this is my schedule. This is my time. And here's how I'm going to map that out more intelligently. Can you give people advice on how to say no? Because learning to say no is part of boundary setting. And then there's also guilt associated whenever we say no or whenever we draw a hard line of this is the boundary. I think what's helped me the most with that is having kind of preset decisions about the common things people ask me for. So a simple one would be you know, with my podcast I've had the last you know six and a half years, I get lots of requests for people to want to be on my show as a guest. And I say no 99 times out of 100 because I get pitched off it enough that I, I, I only interview like two guests a month, maybe three. And so it's a very small number of guests on my show. And so I can't say yes to everyone. And initially, I was trying to do tons of interviews to like fulfill these people's you know, desire to want to be on my podcast. And then I realized, no, I can't do that. 
And so I created an email template that simply, as nicely as I could, said like, you know, my show is already pre-planned and I appreciate the request, you know, but unfortunately I can't. And then I got to the point where I actually made an application and made people actually fill that out. And then I just don't respond to the application. I just frankly just don't. And so what ends up happening is that people kind of go through a process, I set out like a way to, it's a contact form and questions to answer. And then at the end of that, it basically says like, you know, if you're going to be chosen to be on the podcast, I'll contact you. And I very rarely do that. So I've taken a bunch of requests that were coming in and I just filtered them away from my life. So I have to see it as much, but that's not the whole story. There's plenty of other requests that come in that I have to directly address. And so I've had to find ways to say, you know, because of the schedule that I've set, because of the priorities that I have, you know, I can't do everything and I've already chosen certain things to do. So the request that you have, I can't fulfill, um, which is not me saying like, you know, I hate you and this is bad and don't, don't talk to me. It's really just saying like, I have to make choices and I've made those. And unfortunately, what you're asking for doesn't fit into that plan I currently have. And if you find ways to phrase that, that for you is authentic and you're not lying, you're not being mean, you can find ways to be nice to people and still, you know, let them down by saying like, you know, your priorities are set. This is what you're doing. This is how your life works. And the more of that that exists, the easier it is to then kind of send these kind of stock emails to people. I customize them still to make them personal, but I have a template to begin with that already has, for me, I've decided to say no already and I have a way to do so that is, you know, graceful and nice. Yeah, I've just started experiencing that myself. I would say in the last year, just like an inpouring of requests. And I'm a people pleaser and I always feel so bad whenever I have to say no, because I've also tried to go on other people's shows where they either just didn't respond at all or they told me no. So like being an empathetic person can be hard sometimes whenever you have to say no, whether it be like for your podcast or, you know, most people listening don't have a podcast, but saying no to like a family member for something or there's going to be just an insurmountable amount of people wanting our time because they think we bring value and that's awesome. But yeah, like learning how to not feel bad about saying no is, is a whole other ball game. <laughs> I mean, the reality is I still feel bad. Like it's not like yeah. I don't, but I think it, what helps is, is that like you just said, like I get turned down all the time. You know, I ask people for things that they say no to me every single day. And so it's just part of the game. It's just part of what life is. Is like, we all only have the 24 hours that we have. And so we can't do everything. And so I think that knowing that and knowing what you're going to spend your 24 hours on means that it's easier to then let someone know that what they're requesting you know, can't fit into that for you. And the same thing is true if you request it for somebody else to, to be a part of your life. It just it has to you know, be a win win for both people. And if it's not, that's not a bad thing. It's just a thing. Yeah. And I mean, the holidays are over now, but setting boundaries with family members, I find, is really challenging for people. I think one of the reasons people really struggle around the holidays is because that they don't set boundaries with their family. That is completely true. And I think especially <laughs> true in my life, because when my wife and our, our daughter and I, and we all go to Missouri for the holidays, our whole family is in one town. And so we bounce around house to house, like literally every day, multiple times a day. And everybody wants our, to see our, the, you know, the daughter and the, and the baby is there. So just like this whole new experience and like telling someone that loves your child, you can't see her right now. Like that sucks because they want to see her. But it's just like you have to be willing to say like we have a schedule. We set it as nice as possible, but it is what it is. And we're all just going to live with it. And that's OK. But you have to have those conversations face to face. And when you do, people are they're fine with it. Usually it's not a big deal. 
But if you don't have the conversation, then it just leads to lots of other emotional issues. So I think it's better just to be upfront with those things and say what your plan is. And then from there, people usually are fine with it. So I'm going to change topics just briefly here or just slightly, I guess. I read or heard that you call yourself a goal achievement junkie, which Mm -hmm. I can certainly relate with. And you also have said that you have had to go to the hospital on more than one occasion because of burnout. So how did you decide like how to start setting goals and how did it get to the point where you were like getting to that level of burnout? Well, it's interesting to me because I never really viewed myself as a quote unquote kind of high achiever until I left college. And when I was in school, like everyone around me that I knew was trying to get straight A's. They were trying to be involved in every activity. You know, it was just this common thing that like we're all going to do everything because that's just what we do. We want our resumes to look really awesome and we want to be involved in every activity possible. So I didn't think it was unusual to be busy all the time. And so when I got into the working world and left school, I discovered a really stark kind of problem that I saw, which is I saw a lot of laziness. I saw a lot of people doing very little. Now, that may not have actually been true, but that was how I perceived it. I I saw a a slower moving world and I still wanted to be involved in everything and stay busy. And so I kind of took that same mentality into, you know, the projects that I took on and, and the kinds of work and jobs I wanted to do was I wanted to kind of get more out of my time. But as that led to me later on becoming an entrepreneur, it basically meant that I said yes to everything. I was constantly just filling my life with more stuff. And so if somebody asked me to do something, I was just the answer was yes, because I thought there could be a benefit to me somewhere. And so I was just literally not only being proactive with all the things I wanted to do, but I was also reactively saying yes to everything at the same time, just so I could experience more, learn more, kind of be involved in everything, which honestly was actually effective. It was productive. I got a lot done because of it. But over time, that just began to creep in more and more as a sense of higher stress. I'm a little more tired today than it was yesterday. I feel like I can't get to my next stuff like I want to. And over time, it just led to me drinking more coffee, sleeping fewer hours. And that ultimately led to what ended up being a kind of a really intense panic attack uh, that caused me to go to the ER. And that is very scary. And you don't want to be in that position because you don't want to like literally intentionally burn yourself out, which is what I was basically doing. And I feel like I have a tendency towards that even today. Like I still have this like innate part of me that says I want to do more all the time, but I know that my health history does not agree with that. And so I can't live like that forever. And I have to you know, really make those tough decisions about not only what projects I pursue, but then also the very intentional you know, decision to say, I'm also going to sleep as many hours every night. I'm going to take time to do yoga. I'm going to take time to, you know, to rest and do absolutely nothing. Because if I don't have that time built in, I'll probably fill it with just more busy activity that just leads to me being that same guy that I don't want to be anymore. And so it's a hard balance because I'm just my nature says this is who I'm supposed to be. But I also know that can't be true all the time. So it's the simple answer is it's hard to balance that out. But that's just that's my life. So if you're sitting down to set a goal, like what do you actually look at to define what that is for you now? Well, I think for me, it's I have to look at the goal in terms of what result would I get from the goal? Like, is that is it financial for my business is like a personal health goal? Like, is the thing that I would achieve valuable to me? Do I like emotionally care about it? And if I do, and it's important enough to spend my time on, then I just look at my calendar and see like what blocks of time have I set aside for fitness, for work time, 
and I just fit it into those preset blocks. So my calendar is much more intentional as far as when I work, when I work out, when I sleep, when I have family time. Like th that's basically my whole calendar. And if it doesn't fit into one of those blocks, it basically just won't get done because I'm going to have time for sleep. I'm going to have time for fitness. And those are essentially non-negotiables now. So yes, I'm still doing things that matter, but I'm also saying no a lot more often just simply because there's only so much time in the day. And so that's been the biggest change for me is being able to tell myself no to new things, which as I'm getting better at that, I'm, I'm definitely have improved, but that's a constant battle every week to say, you know, I only have X number of hours. That's the end of the story and I'm done. Are there any apps or tools that you regularly use? I know you mentioned your own spreadsheet, but is there anything else that you're using that other people can get? Yeah, I think that there's two main tools I use every single day. Oh, besides my the Mac calendar, I use that. But I also have a task manager called Nozbe. That's N-O-Z-B-E. It's very similar to Asana or Trello or Todoist. There's lots of other task managers that are out there. But Nozbe is my way to manage my individual small tasks for the day. So all the little stuff like phone calls and emails and smaller things, that's all that I keep in there. My bigger stuff, my events, my kind of my fitness time, my bigger blocks of time, that's all on my calendar. And then from there, I also use Evernote and Google Drive as kind of my go-to apps for, you know, storing all my information, my spreadsheets, my research, my books that I'm working on, but my projects are organized there. My big checklists are all in Evernote. And I really use those apps as a way to say like my whole life is managed in just these handful of apps and pretty much everything that I'm going to do is going to somehow be organized there, brainstormed there, you know, filtered through there so that I have everything in a few you know, places that matter. And so I find those tools for me to be the go to, but you don't have to use those tools. I think having a calendar, a task manager, a note taking application, an online storage tool, if you have that kind of basic structure, you can basically organize your entire life and business right there. I know that you eat a plant-based diet and you've run marathons that way. You've, you've had a lot of time as a raw vegan. What made you change your diet and how has that affected your productivity? Being a vegan is awesome. I've, I've loved, I've been for 10 years now, I've been eating a plant-based slash vegan diet, whatever you want to call it. It's the same thing for me. The way it basically happened was that I was 25 and I was looking through kind of these goals I had at the time for fitness. And I was realizing that there was this issue where I just didn't feel like I was kind of doing my best. I wanted to run better and I wasn't. And I happened to stumble across a few documentaries and decided, you know what, I'm going to make nutrition kind of my next big thing to tackle uh, to make sure that my next race can go well, which led me down this massive rabbit hole of books and documentaries and movies and people just learning all about natural health. And what I ultimately like discovered was this whole like world of vegetarians and vegans and plant-based people and this whole existence that I didn't have any knowledge of, of people that didn't eat meat. And at the time, like, I mean, I would eat double cheeseburgers for breakfast. Like <laughs> oh. it was no limits. I had, literally had no filter for food. Whatever came across my table. Yes. The answer was yes. So <laughs> to say no, to have a filter or a boundary for my food was really foreign to me. And so I decided I would give it an experiment, like I usually do, try it out for 30 days and see what happens. And it took me three days before I was like, this is awesome. I'm so in. I'm definitely going to be a vegetarian. That's great. And it wasn't until I watched the documentary Earthlings that I decided I wanted to be a vegan. And that was an overnight decision. It was just automatically animal rights became my number one focus. It was I can't be a part of that world anymore. So I'm just going to, you know, no meat, no dairy, no cheese, no fish. I'm out. And when that happened, 
it was all of a sudden just this eye-opening experience to say, well, if I'm only going to eat fruits and vegetables, how am I going to make that work? And so later on, you know, things like rice and beans, I still eat lots of other good foods, but there was this probably a year, year and a half where I was almost a full raw vegan the entire time, really focusing on just being a, a most extreme version I possibly could because that's just my nature. And that's why I ran some marathons and watched more movies and read more books and got obsessed with it. I don't do all those things today to the same degree, but that was a big foundational shift for me to say, because you know my eyes have opened to a new way to live, I want to live that way as fully as I can to get all these benefits and see how that can change me. And it changed everything. My fitness, my outlook on life, how, how I choose my food, my empathy is much stronger than it ever was before. I feel like there's just so many benefits from, from making that decision. Um, I really can't imagine not having done that 10 years ago. That's awesome. And what did you experience in terms of clarity? Because that's something that I've heard repeatedly from people who have changed their diet. Oh, it was, it was amazing. And actually it was a specific time. I remember this is probably six months into my switch as being a vegan. Um, I was working my day job at the time. I was walking down the hallway of going to a meeting and I had this like literal, like feeling like something shifted in my body and I felt like 10 pounds lighter. And I was like, what just happened? Like, why do I feel this way? Like my body was just going through this like weird purge and cleanse and all this stuff. And I had this like real sense of mental clarity. Like I could think for the first time and in years and that has carried through for a long time. And I find that, yes, if I eat a lot of fatty foods or something, that will kind of go away. But generally speaking, if I'm eating a clean, healthy diet, like I can think so much better, which means I'm more productive. I feel better. I have more energy. And it comes from the food. It comes from the choices that I make there. Yes, sleep matters a lot. Yes, fitness is also part of it. But the diet for me is what really was the catalyst for just that sense of like my brain functions at a higher level than it ever has. And so to me, I don't know exactly the science behind why that is. I just know that it is a thing and I've experienced it. It's really, really cool. Yeah, I don't know 100% the science behind it because I haven't looked, but I would speculate that the reason is because you're actually reversing heart disease in your body so that you have much better blood flow. So you're getting better blood flow to your brain your hormones are also much better regulated. So, and our brain is affected by hormones and neurotransmitters. And also our gut microbiome affects our brain in lots of different ways. In fact, they've been linking depression to the microbiome and the things that you eat directly influence the microbiome. So it's amazing because we look at the body and we try and look at it in a reductionist way saying that, well, if I do X, then it's gonna cause Y. But there's all these other systems at play and everything affects everything. It's a system. It's everything is, is interconnected. So that's why I think diet is so powerful because you might have changed your diet for one reason or another, but it ends up working as a huge system where everything changes. Oh, it's so true. I think what I was really surprised about then that I still am today is just how connected everything is and, and knowing that any choice that I make is going to have a powerful effect, you know, both positive or negative. So if I choose to eat a really bad meal or drink too much alcohol or, or you know, not sleep for a few days in a row, like it just it shuts down everything or or it's the opposite. And I feel fantastic. And I feel like the more often that I'm aware of that, the more it just causes me to make better decisions because I know it's all connected. I know the benefits there and I experience it. And I physically feel it. And I think when that happens, you get that you know, the reinforcement from that. It's really hard to ignore and hard to not want to do those things that are really good for you. 
What are some of your favorite books? You've mentioned a couple, but you've done lots of reading and um, people love on this podcast. We love information. <laughs> so <laughs> what are some of your favorites? Oh, uh, let's see. There's one that I tend to lean on quite a bit. Uh, Ultra Marathon Man by Dean Carnazes. Oh, yeah, uh, that book's awesome. He is. I interviewed him on my podcast a few years ago, and Dean is an incredible guy. And that book honestly changed my whole life. It was many years ago now, but like it was, I, I say that book almost every time someone asks me that question because it was such a powerful, inspirational thing for me. And not just because of the running, because obviously I've run marathons and, and find Dean to be a huge inspiration as an athlete. But I think what was most inspiring about that book was this was a guy who just said, why not? Like, why shouldn't I go run for 200 miles in a row? Like, why shouldn't I go run a marathon in Antarctica? And his like just willingness to try these new crazy things like to me just said, like, what am I holding myself back from? Like, how am I not living a bigger life? And to me, like, that's what I turn to when I want to see like a great inspiration. I always think about that book because it's just like, you know, if Dean can do something like that, you know, surely I could do something smaller. <laughs> and that's kind of what drives me to want to do more a lot of times. Awesome. Are there any others? Um, it depends on what topic we're talking about. In terms of productivity, uh, there's a great book called The One Thing. Uh, that I tend to lean on a lot because it's a really great book for focus. And the whole concept behind the book is that there is one thing that really truly matters every day. And if you do that one thing, it has a powerful effect on everything else. I use that as a way to filter out what projects to pursue and what things to work on. So that's a great one. Along the same lines, it's related to that book is one called Essentialism by Greg McEwen. Uh, that's an awesome book for kind of the same topic, but it's about being an essentialist and discovering what things matter the most and making those your priority. Getting Things Done, of course, is a classic book in productivity world as well. Deep Work is a new one that I've loved recently by Cal Newport. Uh, Hyper Focus by uh, Chris Bailey. There's lots of great books out there. It just depends on which topic, but uh, I love those for productivity. That's awesome. I think if we were to look at each other's audibles or bookshelves, we'd find a lot of similar books. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cool. Where's the best place for people to get in touch with you so that they can find all of these great books you've written and your podcasts and your articles? JeffSanders.com is the place to be to discover all the things I'm currently doing. Uh, the podcast, The 5 a.m. Miracle, is available you know, Apple Podcasts and everywhere else in the world. It's probably the best place to learn from me. So I'd start there. Or of course, you can go to Amazon for the books. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you. It was a lot of fun. I hope you guys got a lot out of that. And there are so many books that he mentioned that I've linked in the show notes. I've also linked my episode with Greg McEwen, author of Essentialism, which was also mentioned in the show. And that was a really fun interview that I did as well. I hope you guys have a productive week and that we see you right back here in just a few days. Thanks for listening. Wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures.